a royal priesthood is what we are thinking about all weekend. So just to whet your appetite of what the next hour will hold, um, firstly, we're going to play, who knows where's Wally? Yeah? We're going to play Where's Dan Hater? Um, Then we're going to um, realise that the Bible is quite a lot like a website from the 1990s. We're also going to cover the whole of human history from creation to new creation. So we've got a lot to cover this morning, all in the aim of seeing what an amazing privilege it is that we are called a royal priesthood. And then that is something not to be taken for granted. Oh no, Aura might have found out where he is. How does she know? Um, So we're going to be thinking about what is a priest. Now, I don't know uh, what you think of when you think of a priest, but I've got a picture of of, um, maybe what an Old Testament priest would have worn. Uh, A priest uh, was someone, they had these splendid robes and they ministered before God in the temple. Now, uh, Abba are doing this new virtual tour. They've got holograms. So I've actually got a hologram of a priest. Um, So if my hologram wants to come out, uh, they may be wearing something that looks a little bit more like Red Riding Hood than a priestly robe. But here is our um, splendid priest who's been hiding. He's, he's been in there for 20 minutes, barely able to move, and that's the applause you give him. Thank you, Dan. You can stay here. Thank you. Thank you. So what is a priest? Well, a priest, as you can see, is someone who ministers to God, who worships God, and who ministers God to the world. Okay? So that's really important. A priest has two duties. Here is the priest ministering God to the world right now. Bless you, Aura. So what did the Old Testament priests do? Well, they worshipped God daily. They offered sacrifices to him. They were praising him day by day. And the priests were the only ones who had the privilege of coming into the presence of God. That's why, oh no, a non-priest has gone into the presence of God. This is ruining my analogy. Aura. Okay, well, Dan was allowed in there. So, so a priest can minister in the presence of God. But they also had a role to minister God to the world, didn't they? they? They would offer sacrifices on the people's behalf. They would bring the people to God. Actually, they would sometimes even go outside the camp to bring cleansing, to bring ritual cleansing, to bring people back in. Anyway, wonderful priests, you may sit down now. Thank you. Let's give him a round of applause for his work. <laughs> you can bring your, your priestly secretary with you. Okay, we'll leave him to it. So an Old Testament priest had a dual role. They ministered God's, uh, they, sorry, they ministered praise to God in his presence and they ministered God to the world. They showed God, they offered God to the world to bring them together. And the reason that priests are needed, and this is important, is because there was separation between God and his people. That's why priests were needed. And so this morning, we're going to see an amazing truth. We're going to see that we are called priests. And so we're going to read our passage, 1 Peter 2, verses 4 to 12. Um, I've asked uh, Chloe if she would be happy to read it for us. Uh, So if you have a Bible, feel free to follow along. Um, But we're going to read um, uh, 1 Peter 2, uh, verses 4 to 12. Thanks, Chloe. 1 Peter 2, uh, chapter 2, verses 4 to 12 in NIV. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, 
You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who don't, don't believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Thank you, Chloe. So we are priests. That's what it says in the passage. It says we are a holy priesthood and a royal priesthood. That's who we are. We, the church, Jesus' people, we are priests. And we, just like the Old Testament priests, have that dual role. We minister worship to God. That's part of our purpose, is to come into God's presence and worship him. And we see that in our passage. Verse four, it says, as you come to him. It's our role to come to God. In verse five, it says we offer spiritual sacrifices to him in Christ. And in verse nine, it says we declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wondrous light. And so as priests, we come into God's presence to minister worship to him. But it's also our job to minister God to the world, to bring God to the world. And so you see in this passage as well, verse nine, it says we declare his praises. Now that's first and foremost for God, but as we speak out his praises, the world hears, don't they? When we start to tell of what he has done in our lives, yes, that's worship to God, but the world hears. And it also says in verse 12, it's talking about our conduct in the world. It says, think of your conduct among the Gentiles so they may glorify God on the day he visits us. We are true priests. And we're going to dive into this passage much more a little later on. But I want to pause there. And actually, I want to spend most of the session on a bit of a tangent. I want to spend most of the session stopping and realizing that this passage is totally outrageous. Actually, just the first five words of this passage are totally outrageous. So let's think of the first five words, as you come to him, as you come to God, as you come to him. We, the people of God, have the privilege of coming to him. We should not take that for granted. We can't take that for granted. That is the great privilege of our lives. And think of the way God speaks of us in verse 9. It says, we are a chosen people. He chose us. We are a, a holy nation. We are set apart by God. And we are his treasured possession. We belong to no other. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to explore the truth that being a priesthood 
being those who are welcomed into God's presence, who have intimate relationship with him, who don't just know about God, but know God. But that is the great privilege of who we are as Christians. And we cannot afford to take that for granted. We must treasure that with every fibre of our being. And so I want us to realise how big a privilege this is. So we're going to rewind the clock, okay? We're going to go back to the first pages of the Bible and explore the story of God and his people and his presence. But before we do that, we're going to go on another tangent, okay? Are you ready? Now this, this is precisely the reason I'm doing a tangent, because I just said, are you ready? And I got deadly silence. <laughs> and so I thought, people won't have slept much. They'll need something to wake them up. And what wakes us up more than an exciting time of highlighting the Bible? Am I right? Yeah. 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 Thank you. We got some excited. So I want, you will see, give me, give me, wave your A3 bit of paper if you've got a bit of paper around you. So in a second, we'll be gathering around these people in fives or sixes. Uh, and we're going to do, thank you, Tom, very enthusiastic. <laughs> we're going to do a bit of an activity together, just for five minutes, when we're going to explore this passage. Now, the reason I'm doing this is because, um, yes, I want to dive into the meaning, but it's such a great thing to learn how to read the Bible together. I love the Bible. I love the way that it enriches me. I love the way that it shows me Christ. I love the way that it speaks to my heart. And so it's good to keep learning how to read the Bible, right? That's a good thing. We can all keep learning how to read the Bible. And did you know that the Bible, especially the New Testament, but actually, no, actually the whole Bible is quite a lot like a 1990s webpage. It's like something where if you could, and actually quite a lot of digital Bibles you can, if you could click on it, it would take you off to all of the different parts of the Bible that it was referencing. Hyperlinks into passages and books and themes going throughout the whole of Scripture. Another way of thinking about it, um, who's ever read a book about the Bible? Give me a wave if you've read a book about the Bible. Well, quite a few of us will have. Okay, there are some books called commentaries, and they kind of spell out what um, the author thinks the Bible passage is saying. One way I like to think about the New Testament is it's like a divine commentary. It's, it's a divinely inspired, Christ-centered explanation of the Old Testament. That's often what the New Testament is. And so what I want to do now is I want to dive in a little bit to all of the different ways 1 Peter 2 picks up themes of the Old Testament. And I think what you'll see is that as we get to know our Bibles more and more, we start to spot that Scripture is this rich tapestry of biblical ideas, where we will get so much more out of it. Okay, so it's time for the exercise. What we're going to do, we've all got this passage, and some of you have a highlighter, or you might have a pen with you. Um, some of you start from the beginning, some of you start from the end, because you don't have long, but we're going to find... Anything that you think, hey, I think that's an Old Testament idea, or maybe that's a quote, or maybe that's a theme, just highlight it, and we'll share together what we find. Now, I'm not going to do points, but I am going to lay down some ground rules, okay? So some of you have Bibles with footnotes that will tell you of their quotes. I guess that's okay if you want to. Some of you will have snazzy Bibles with cross-references, which say, oh, maybe this is a, talking about this. That is flat-out cheating, okay? So any of you with snazzy Bibles, no. That's cheating. So grab your piece of A3 paper 
and highlight anything you think, oh, maybe that's an Old Testament idea. Maybe that's a quote from the Old Testament. Maybe that's something. Uh, And we'll do it in groups of five or six. You're not doing it on your own. It's a group activity. uh, And I'll bring you back together in five minutes. Okay, so maybe we can have a tiny bit of background music. And you've got five minutes. Grab a group of five or six people. um, And we'll be back. I, I was talking through my session with Beth um, in the week, and I said, oh, we're going to do a fun activity. We're going to highlight the Bible. And Beth just laughed at me for calling that fun. But I thought that was fun. Did you think it was fun? Yeah. 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 Good. I'm pleased. OK, let's, let's start shouting out a few ideas. What kind of themes or quotes or references did you see? And then in a second, I'll put up another slide of a few that I found. But I definitely didn't find them all. Um, and I also did use, I did use Bibles to help me. So sorry, Liz. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, what do people find? Shout out. Michael, what did you find? Well, I highlighted I lay, in, uh, I lay a stone in Zion. And when Moses went up the mountain of Zion, he had a stone with him so that Jesus could write the Brilliant. Okay, so yeah, so you were picking up about the, the stone in Zion, you were picking up that theme. Zion is a, a place in the uh, Old Testament where the temple was. Brilliant, Micah. Thank you. What else? I spotted the passage from Hosea, um, who as a prophet named his children, but not my people, and not fitted. And then um, God told him that in, in the future, his people, they will be his people. Yeah, great spot, Jenny. So the, the last. Um, verse you can see on the screen. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's picking up the ideas of the prophet Hosea. Um, This is what it says in Hosea 2.23. And now I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. And so, yeah, there's a very clear allusion that probably won't be footnoted in your Bible, but you can see, oh, Peter's clearly referencing it. What else? What other things? Someone said this is cheating because most of this is references to the Old Testament. That's true. So there's more here. What else? There were some direct quotes. Did people spot them? Oh, that, that, this is a good one. Yeah, do, do, do you know where that's from? Anyone from your group? Isaiah, to be fair... I think it says throughout the Old Testament, <laughs> you, know, you, you know, I will be your God and you will be my people. Yeah, it does. Um, but that, so that passage, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. That's a really key passage. It's key because I said we're looking at being a royal priesthood. Um, but we're going to pick up actually a verse all the way back, even before um, any of the prophets, all the way back in Exodus. And it says this in Exodus 19. Verses five and six. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. Okay? So it's a bit out of order. You'll be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. It's a bit like a royal priesthood, isn't it? And a holy nation. And so Peter is very deliberately bringing ideas out of what Moses wrote down from God in the book of Exodus. Brilliant. Well, you guys have brought up brilliant things. I hope you will see there's actually probably lots more in there that you guys would have found. Um, uh, this, is, this is my little, I think it's fun to visualize. You can just see, I didn't even look at the first real chunk. There are loads of things in there. 
There's loads of things. The, the three in yellow, they're, they're direct quotes. Your Bible will probably say they're footnotes from Isaiah um, 28 and uh, from Psalm 118. But there's loads in there. And so what Peter's doing is he's weaving together this rich tapestry of biblical ideas to show how they have their fulfillment in Christ. Okay, so that's the tangent over. What we're going to do now is we're going to tug on one of those threads, okay? That Exodus 19 thread that we read right at the end. And what we're going to see is there is a beautiful story throughout Scripture of God, his people, and his presence. Okay, you ready to rewind the clock all the way back to Genesis? Joe's ready. Is anyone else ready? Good. Remember that exercise was meant to wake you up. Good. So let's start at the very beginning. A very good place to start. It's like when you say a Bible passage and people finish it. You just do it the same with the sound of music. Um, So we begin our journey thinking about how we have been separated by sin. We were created to be in relationship with God, to be in fellowship with God. And that is clear on every page of Scripture. And yet we're going to go back to the first pages of the Bible, Genesis 1 to 3, to see how we were created. And to begin that, we're going to take a little wander over to this beautiful garden. Can you see, can everyone see? I'm going to stand just here to make, is that better or worse, Matt? Oh, look at that. Wow. Oliver, you have done well. Can everyone see the beautiful garden? Feel free to stand if you want to see it. But we find ourselves, obviously, in the Garden of Eden. You see, God, in his great wisdom and in his perfection, he made all things. But it was never his intention to create and then run. But he always wanted to be intimately involved with this creation. And we don't have time to dive into the passages of Genesis, but we can see from his interaction with this creation, just how involved he was. You can read about how, how God spoke with, uh, spoke with Adam. He had interaction with Adam. He, he, he created beasts and brought them to him for him to name. And he gave Adam a commission. And yet he saw that it wasn't good for Adam to be alone. He couldn't do that commission. And so he created Eve to come alongside to be able to fulfill that commission. God was intimately involved in the day-to-day existence of his creation. He wasn't distant. He wasn't far. He was right in the midst. And then in one of the most interesting, one of the most intimate ways that God was in the midst of his creation is in a story in Genesis 3 where humanity takes a turn for the worst. Because what we find in Genesis 3 is God is actually walking in the garden. We read this in Genesis 3 verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord, the Lord God, among the trees of the garden. The reason they hid was because moments earlier, they had chosen to ignore the way that God had told them to live. They had rejected what God had said. They had not trusted him, and they thought they would chance it alone. That's called sin. They had rejected God, they had sinned, and what happened was immediate separation. And what's interesting is the separation 
is first and foremost a separation of our hearts. When we turn our heart away from God as we sin, it actually really wrenches our hearts so we don't even want to go back to God. What happened when God came close? They hid. They ran and hid. And yet that's not the end of the separation. There were consequences to their sin. God said to them in Genesis 3, 23 to 24, so the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a sword, a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Sin had caused separation between God's and the people he made for himself, the people he desperately loved, the people who he was intimately involved with, sin wrenched a massive void between us and God. In our hearts, and also there had to be physical separation because God could not dwell with sin. So that's the first part of our story. God loves to dwell with his people, but sin brings separation. And yet we see throughout the Old Testament that God has had a desire to dwell with a people he would call his own. That's always been God's intention. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to fast forward to the book of Exodus. Now I've spoken to many people in the church family over the last few months about how brilliant the Prince of Egypt is. I grew up listening to the Prince of Egypt. I love that film. Has any, the, the people are looking with blank faces. It's like the greatest film ever, right? No? Yeah? Some people agree. I love that film. Uh, if you had to summarize Exodus, I wonder if you'd summarize it as the story of God saving his people from slavery. I think many people would. And that's the story of the Prince of Egypt. It's exciting, it's dramatic, it's terrifying at points. God, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, brought his people out of slavery. And yet... That only summarizes the first half of the book. Has anybody started reading the book of Exodus and when it started describing details about how to build a tent, given up? I won't make you put your hands up. But what we're going to do now is we're going to go over to the tabernacle. Look at this. Isn't this a, a glorious tabernacle? Um, this three-foot circus tent. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure how glorious it is, but that's the best we have, and I'm very grateful to Joe for helping find that prop. Um, <laughs> I would say that a better summary of the book of Exodus is God attempting, God making a way to dwell with his people again. And the tabernacle is central to that. Because as we read through the story of the Exodus, we see it so clearly that God wants to be with his people. Exodus 19 says this, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Remember this passage? Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests chosen out of the whole earth. Oh, sorry, I read that bit wrong. Um, you'll be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God spoke this over the whole nation of Israel. He wasn't speaking about just the priests. It's important to notice that. He said, no, the whole nation of Israel, you will be to me a priest, a priesthood. 
You will be for me those who can come into my very presence, who I will dwell among, that you might worship and know me. Not know about me, but know me intimately. And you will be a people who will declare to the world how glorious, how compassionate, and how gracious I am. It was God's desire that the people of Israel would be a royal priesthood for him. He wanted to dwell with them, but the separation of God and man hadn't changed. Sin was still an issue. Now, God wanted to physically dwell with his people in a tent, and so it was, it was important that he brought his people out of Egypt, out of slavery. Now, there were many reasons he did that. Was it to free them from the horrendous oppression they were under? Yes. But he didn't want them to just come out and be free to do whatever. He wanted them to come out to know intimate relationship with him, the God who loved them, the God who saved them. But even though he miraculously brought them out of slavery, sin remained. Sin was still an issue. Israel, just like the rest of humankind, were full of sin. And actually, the great jeopardy of Exodus, we find in Exodus 33, where God threatens to not be with his people anymore. They had been brought out of Egypt, and yet they turned to worship an idol, a golden calf, someone who was not their God. And God responds like this, Exodus 33. The Lord said to Moses, leave this place. You and the people you brought up out of Egypt. Then go to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. Sin remained to be an issue. The people, just like Adam and Eve, had rejected God. And God said, I can't dwell with you like that. And yet there was a glimmer of hope. And that hope was who God was. One chapter later, we read that there starts to be a solution. God passes in front of Moses, proclaiming. This is him telling Moses who he is. The Lord, the Lord. The compassionate and gracious God. Slow to anger. Abounding in love and faithfulness. Maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. God declares to Moses who he is. And though he is a righteous judge who does bring justice on sin, he is clear that for his people who turn to him, he is gracious and compassionate. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Which brings us to the end of the book of Exodus. And as I said, I think that book is about God dwelling with his people again. And what is the very final chapter of Exodus? The temple, uh, the tabernacle, sorry, is erected in the center of the people and the glory of the Lord descends. Exodus ends with God dwelling with his people again. We are moving through the journey and we are seeing some hope. Okay, the story so far. Sin has separated us from God and yet God in his compassion, he desperately desires to be with a people chosen for himself and his forgiveness is making a way to do that. And what we see in the Old Testament 
is that there is a great delight in the temple. Ian, do you want to come up for a second? I've got a couple of passages that we're going to read together. So what we see throughout the Old Testament, thank you, Ian, is that the people of Israel love to go to the temple. You actually see this across the Psalms. You see this um, in, in the, the narrative books. You see it in the prophets. They love to be in the temple of God. And so this is from um, Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. And so we see they cry out for the living God, but how do they express that? with delight at being in the courtyard, with delight at being in the presence of God. This guy, the, the psalmist has gone up to the temple and he's looking at it. He's saying, look how beautiful it is. Why? Because I love to be in God's presence. That psalm actually goes on and the, the psalmist is jealous of the sparrows that nest in the temple. Isn't that hilarious? He's saying, look how lucky they are. They get to be in God's presence the whole time. And so there's a great delight in the presence of God in the temple. And yet what we also see in the Old Testament is there's a yearning for more. There's a longing for more. Because although the temple brought people close to God, it had its limits. The sacrifices that the priests did for the people had to happen again and again and again. And actually, it was only priests who could really come into the heart of God's presence. Everyone else had to stay back. It was God's presence, but it was at arm's length. And actually, just to think about it, there were priests at all. And what is a priest? It is someone who has to stand between God and his people. There was closeness, but with caveats. And what we start to see is the prophets start to speak of a yearning for more a longing for more. We start to see people like the prophet Joel who says, oh, there will be a day when the spirit will be poured out on all flesh. And we see the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31 saying this, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put their law, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their gods and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sin no more. As we get closer and closer to the day that Christ would come, the prophets start to speak of a new day, a day where there won't need to be people teaching the law, the priest won't be teaching the law. Even a day where we won't need constant sacrifice to come to God. But a day where God's people will truly be his people. Where God will truly be their God. And how does he achieve that? By remembering their sin no more. The temple brought closeness to God. But it was only ever a temporary solution. To truly be in God's presence, we needed something far more drastic. Okay, we're almost at the end of the journey. I used to um, love going on um, family holidays, and my parents would drag me on long walks. I don't know why, but as a kid, I didn't like long walks. I now love long walks. Um, but it would be okay to go on a long walk if at the end of it, there was a pub lunch. Am I right? That's right, isn't it? 
You could go on a long walk as long as there's bangers and mash and a nice orange juice and lemonade at the end. And we've gone on a long journey from, from the garden all the way to the tabernacle, through to the prophets, uh, the longing for more. Uh, and we find ourselves now at the end of our journey, at a place where Matt won't be as upset about the feedback levels. Um, we find ourselves at the cross. This is where our journey has been leading. Because for God to truly dwell with his people, sin had to be dealt with. Sin was the thing that kicked the people out of the garden. Adam and Eve had to leave. Their hearts were turned away from God and there was separation between God and humanity. The tabernacle brought people close, but there were caveats. And yet at the cross, something different happened. With Christ, everything changed. Hebrews 10 says this. This is a beautiful passage. It says, day after day, Every priest stands and performs his religious duties, and again and again, he offers the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. So he's talking about the Old Testament. The, the priest can never take away sins with the old system. But when this priest, he's talking about Jesus, when this priest has offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made a footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. It is only in Christ that we can come to God. There has always been a separation. So just to be clear, if you think it's okay to come into God's presence without Jesus, you are wrong. God is an awesome God, a holy God, and it is only through Christ that we come to him. That is the privilege of being a Christian. And let's go back to our passage now in 1 Peter 2, because we see amazing things about this. In the first verses, it says, as you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. As we come to the rejected stone, Christ on the cross, the one that we as humanity rejected, we poured out our scorn on him, he was crucified for our sin. It is actually on him that we are built into a temple. We are the living stones. It's nothing about, it's none of this brick and mortar, it's none of this wood or, or, or steel. It's us, the living stones that on Christ on the cross are being built together to be a temple a royal priesthood. Verse six, it says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. That's who we are. Do you know that? We will stand before Christ and he will not have let us down. He does not break his promises. He does not reject any of those who his father has given him. He does not put you to shame. That's huge. That is a promise of God we must hold on to and that is only possible in Christ. No other way. He does not put us to shame. It is Christ, the stone laid in Zion, who does it. And so because of Jesus, we are a royal priesthood. We are a people who minister worship to God. We are a people who don't have to stand at arm's length anymore, but can come into his very 
presence. And this is the great privilege of our lives. The longing of the people of the Old Testament is met in Christ. And we cannot and should not take this privilege for granted. It's an amazing story, isn't it? We, here today, are part of this thousands of year old human history that God has been weaving together his salvation in. We are not just random people sitting in some place that I don't actually quite know where we are in the world. We are the people of God who have been brought into his story. In Christ, we have been brought close to the one who said, let there be light. That's who we are. That's who we are in Christ. Okay, we've done a whistle-stop tour. I'm going to end in a minute, I promise. And we're going to get some tea and coffee. But I just want to spend the last five minutes thinking a bit more about how this truth affects our lives, okay? So we've done lots of interesting, exciting things. We've looked at the toucan who is slowly deflating on the Garden of Eden. Um, We've seen the tabernacle, which um, really should be about, I don't know, 10 times the size of that. Uh, And we've seen on the wonderful cross how Christ has made a way that we might be called a royal priesthood. So let's now ask ourselves a question. How should this affect our lives? Thank you, Paul. Um, (laughs) So so I've got five quick ways. Um, Peter and Voucher are going to pick up more on this, but I've got five quick ways that I think this should stir us. One, the most important thing this should do is stir up worship in our hearts. If we get this, if we get the the fact that we have been brought in to this incredible story that Christ has won for us, what can we do but well up in our hearts and say, praise the Lord. Isn't he worthy? Isn't his name glorious? And the crazy thing is that is exactly what the job of a priest is. It's our job to come to God and tell him, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That is our job as priests. We come into his presence and worship him. We can say, we can remember verse four of our passage and say, Who am I to come to him? Who am I to come to him? And yet, he's made a way. We can think uh, of verse five as we offer spiritual sacrifices, or verse nine as we declare the praises of who? The one who brought us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. If we get this, the, the natural response is an outpouring of worship. Isn't he wonderful? Isn't he glorious? Isn't he the one who is worthy of praise? But two, it should bring great security to who we are. To know that we are called priests of God should bring us great security. Now, if you're given a job, you'll be given a job description and you have to meet certain objectives or have to live up to certain things. So you might think, why is it give me security to be given a job by God, to be a priest who worships him and who ministers to him to the world? Don't I have a tick list that I have to tick off? Isn't that pressure on me? No, the reason it gives us security is because it was all done by Christ. I love it. Verse 10 says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We didn't take mercy. We didn't earn mercy. We didn't get mercy. We received mercy. Christ gave us mercy. And that verse again in verse six, those who believe on him, 
not work their way up, not impress him, those who believe on Christ will not be put to shame. You see, the fact that we are a priesthood is a great sense of security because it is Christ who has ordained us, no one else, not ourselves, it was him. So one, it should lead to worship. Two, security. Three, from that, it should bring wonderful transformation. If our hearts understand how glorious God is, if it, it bubbles up inside of us, and if we have a great security of who we are, then what is expected is our lives start to change. Our lives start to go from glory to glory as we reflect this wonderful Christ who saved us. And you'll notice Unfortunately, I can't actually fit it on um, the passage I did earlier, but the last two verses of the passage, verse 11 and 12, Peter brings the churches to think about just this. He says in verse 11, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. He says once you understand the privilege of being priests, it naturally flows that we reject our old way of life, that we say no to the ways of the world. Now, it's important to notice that Peter tells us these things wage war against our soul. We, don't, we shouldn't be naive. It's not easy to abstain from the things of the world, our sinful desires. It's not like, oh yeah, easy, I'll do that, God. No, they wage war against our soul. We have to constantly, as an act of faith, say, I choose Christ. I follow him. I obey him because he has said, I am a, a priest. He has said, I'm holy in his sight. He says, I'm a chosen person. And so those things of the world, which is so easy to fall into, we have to say, no, I'm not going to go that way. That subtle self-interest that pervades our society that says, I'm the center of the universe. That's a sinful desire we have to say no to. It's in the world around us. It's everywhere. It says, oh, I don't mind being a friend with you, but I don't really want to listen to you. I don't really want you to be able to speak into my life. Or maybe it says, oh, mum and dad, oh, I don't want to listen to you. Oh, it depends how old you are, how relevant that is, I guess. That's, a, that's the thing we have to say no. That's not the way we're going to live. We're not going to give in to those sinful desires. Maybe it's the other subtle things that creep in in our working world or at school. The gossiping or the backbiting. The white lies or the, the half-truths. It's so easy to fall into, isn't it? It's the water we swim in in our society. We just, if we're not careful, we just fall into it. And yet we say, no, Christ is something better. Christ says something better of me. I will not do that. I will wage war against it. Maybe it's sexual practices of the world because the world has a very different sexual ethic than we do. Maybe it's giving in to fake sex or pornography. Maybe it's settling for sex outside of the glorious context of marriage that God has given us. These things are easy to fall into. They're easy to say, maybe it's okay, but God has something more that he has for us a more glorious reality that he wants us to step into. Because waging war against these things, abstaining from them, is an act of worship to him. It says, I trust you, Jesus, that what you offer is actually better. Warfare hurts. Warfare is costly. But it says the prize is worth it. Four, calling. This is really linked, actually. But... Our job as priests is one, to minister worship to God, but two, is to bring God to the world. 
And so it, it brings calling. It's our calling to bring God to the world. Vout is going to pick up much more on this tomorrow, so I won't go into great depth. But isn't it wonderful? It says our job is to declare the praises of him. Not just anyone, but who brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so as priests, we declare his praises in words and in deeds. In verse 12, it says, live such good lives among the pagans, those who don't know Jesus, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. That transformation actually is not just an act of worship to God. The thing is, is when our lives reflect more and more who Jesus is, then they are a wonderful witness to the world around us. People notice. Sometimes we react negatively to that. A lot of 1 Peter, the book of 1 Peter is about that. But they're a witness to the world. They speak of the gospel to the world around us. And so it is our calling as God's people to be holy. We can't skirt around that. We don't live holy to impress God. No, he's made us priests. But he calls us to be his righteous ones. He calls us into holiness, into life transformation, to live such good lives that they may see God and glorify him. And finally, as we end, the final most, actually, yeah, the most important thing probably along with worship is hope. This morning we've thought about the privilege that we get to be the people of God's presence. And that's an amazing privilege. But we must remember that what we experience in this life is a foretaste of what will come. We mustn't lose sight of that. As you did your little exercise with the A3 paper, did anybody highlight the words exile and foreigner? A few of us. That's a really interesting Old Testament theme. Because the people of God were kicked out of their land and they were called exiles. People who were in a land not their own. They didn't enjoy the freedoms that God had them to be in. They didn't get to be fully who God had made them to be. And Peter, interestingly, calls the Christians exiles because he knows we look forward to a day when Christ will return and all will be made new. And so as we end, I put this throne in the middle because Revelation 21 says this. This is the Apostle John thinking of when Christ will return, going into eternity. He says this, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. You see, it has always been God's desire to dwell with his people. It has always been right from the beginning of creation into the way he made through the tabernacle and the temple. It has always been God's desire to dwell with his people. And we have the privilege right now in what you could call the church age. Christ has come once, but he will come again. We're waiting in this time. We have the privilege of having his Holy Spirit among us and being built together as living stones into a temple, a living temple and a royal priesthood. But we mustn't lose sight. There is a day coming where as you see that throne in the middle of you, that is how you will see God, the Father and the Son. We will see him face to face, a day where all wrongs will be made right. 
where every tear will be wiped away, a day where every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is the day we look forward to. And as we look ahead, and as we say we will not lose sight of when Christ will come again, we say, praise the Lord, that today we get to be a people of his presence. We get to be a royal priesthood who gets to minister worship to God and minister God to the world. It is the great privilege of our lives. Amen? Amen. We're going we're gonna to sing a song. We're going to sing a song. Paul shrugged at me, so that means yes. We're going to sing one song because it, it is great to reflect on these things. But ultimately, the, the first way we want to respond is worship. Now, that doesn't mean singing. Singing is a way to express worship. But if these truths don't go deep into our heart where they well up and say, wow, Christ has made a way for us, really, there's no point. <laughs> but he has made a way for us. He is a glorious one. And so we're going to sing, praise the name of the Lord our God. And verse three, I love verse three, because it says, he shall return in robes of white. The blazing sun shall pierce an eye, and I will rise among the saints, my gaze transfixed on Jesus' face. There is the day coming where we'll see him. Like we see each other now, we will see him. So why don't you um, stand with me if you're able, and let's worship God together before we have our break.